Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, a coach, and this is episode 117 of the Weekly Word Podcast. And as we always talk about, the Weekly Word Podcast is about endurance training, endurance athletics, endurance mindset, and in many ways trending towards the ultra-endurance space. And I define sort of ultra-endurance space as any event that's you know more than 12, 13, 14 hours where you're basically going into the next evening and then beyond. Many days, many, many um, hours beyond 12, 13 hours. And what those type of endurance events entail, require, how we train for them, what the mindset needs to be, as well as just overall sharing of what we all learned in this community and how we can do things better. How you cannot necessarily shortcut anything, but that you have advice and guidance and an advocate with you that allows you to maximize the limited training time that you have. Because like I always say, we went pro in something other than this endurance athletics. And if we as a community together and me sort of talking through it with you can help you maximize that limited time, it just allows you to have a better outcome allows you to balance that three-legged stool a little bit better. Reminder of the three-legged stool is your personal endeavors, your professional and work endeavors is the second one, and then your personal family, um, personal life endeavors is the third leg of the stool. And they are all so important in order to have a healthy relationship with each one of them. You know, you can't do endurance training without having a healthy family and personal relationship stool. You can't do um, endurance athletics and follow your intrigue and your curiosity and your your sort of uh, wanting to know what you're capable of as an athlete if your work life, if your professional life is not necessarily in balance, but uh, being attended to. That leg of the stool is strong and contributing to your overall daily life and the version of who you currently are. And so that's basically, without a fancy intro, what we discuss on the Weekly Word Podcast. And we're 117 episodes in. That's probably a good 350 hours of talking. And we're going to dive into emails today again and topics that I see from my weekly email updates and training log updates and discussions with my athletes. So yeah, that's this week on the Weekly Word Podcast. And we're going to dive into a few topics here. One is um, I dive into train where you are, not where you want to be. You guys all know this. But again, another example of how important it is to train where you currently are and not where you want to be. And our mindset in general with so many things, whether work or other goals we've set in our lives is always the other way around. Think of where you want to be, approach it of where you want to be, and then therefore, you know, you'll quickly ramp up and catch up with where you currently are. But in training, it's so much harder in endurance athletics and in athletics in general. There are no shortcuts and there are no hacks and you sort of got to do the work. And that's what I dive into on that topic. We have an email about dehydration, which of course is so important and it keeps also coming up in a variety of um, 
avenues that I discuss, whether it's at events, whether it's talking to athletes after their event and their post-race analysis, when I'm talking to them after a long training day, dehydration can always comes up. And so I try to talk again about this very important topic. It's almost like you can't talk about it enough. I also talk about something that um, frustrates a lot of athletes and they, they judge themselves very harshly on this. And that is training isn't supposed to always be achievable. And that catches many off guard. The purpose of training is that you're extending yourself, you're stretching yourself, you're pushing yourself to new places, fitness-wise, speed-wise, effort-wise, oxygen uptake-wise, all kinds of ways. And therefore, many times the intervals prescribed, the paces prescribed, the workload prescribed isn't going to be achievable. You're supposed to grow to get there. And that's why it's called training. If you were just executing every workout and it wasn't wasn't much of a stretch, then it would be exercising. That's not training. That's exercise. And then, I know, phone calls here. I dive into um, a longer topic, and that is mindset um, for training through valleys, through difficult days, and especially when a variety of difficult days in different contexts string together two, three, four, five days in a row, sometimes even weeks in a row, and how to work through that and a positive mindset, keeping in mind the desired outcome, the journey, the goal, and what we're also setting expectations on and how we're really enjoying this training. If it's something joyful, if it's something meaningful to us, if there's purpose, clarity, and intention behind it, and feeling a sense of accomplishment, your ability to look backwards, as well as training logs and diaries in order to capture this so that you continue to progress forward and realize, am I making progress? Am I a little bit closer today to my desired outcome? If that desired outcome is properly described and quantified with regards to it's realistic, it's reasonable, it's attainable, but it also creates intrigue. It also creates curiosity. It also creates a little fear. And that is the most important thing I feel when it comes to this training and these ultra endurance goals. They have to be a little unattainable and they have to create intrigue and they have to create curiosity. It's a lot of training to do something that you already know what the outcome will probably be. And so I talked about that. I dive into no heart rate needed for swimming and why. And then finally, I talk about um, com- combining on an email, um, 50 miler and 70.3 training. Let's say you have two events, two desired outcomes, and they're pretty close together, not necessarily within weeks, but let's say two months, but they each require a different buildup. So I got a question on that on email. And in general, as many athletes are building their season right now and planning their season and doing their entries for 2020, it becomes a good question that many um, wonder about. Like, how many things can I do in a season? I got a a question from an uh, athlete of mine just the other day who asked, well, can I do my first 70.3 and an Ironman and I think it was a 50K or some sort of trail run or half something trail run or swim run, I think it was. Um, all within three, four months or three months or four months probably. And I said, it's always just a question of your expectations. Can you? Of course. 
can you do an Ironman? If you've never do, done an Ironman next July, of course. Can you do an Ultraman next year? Of course. It's just a question of what you expect the outcome to be and how you want it to feel. In this case, the athlete that had three events in three months, yeah, the risk that one of them is not going to feel good or is going to be not according to expectations is very, very high, very real. If we're building through it and we set low expectations because we have a bigger goal in mind at the end of the three, easy, easy for the athlete, easy for me. But if you set high expectations, want to PR, want to feel great, want to continue to you know, crush it growing in your athletic prowess on all three individually, that might be very hard to achieve. So as you're building your season, keep that in mind. Just what are my expectations? If I set my expectations realistically, can I do a lot of events? Yes. My first Ironman in 2020, can I do it? Yes. But can I expect to do an 11 or 1030 or sub 10? No, if it's your first, right? That's not realistic. Now, of course, you might be a very talented athlete and those things might happen. But going in with less expectation and getting it done, getting the first one under your belt, having the adventure, doing something on the far edge of reality or of what you're comfortable with, that's a great idea. And I'm always a proponent of that. Keep the unattainable goal out there and we'll make it, un uh, we'll make it attainable via training. Is it unreasonable now? It might look like that on paper as you're signing up for this event, but we'll make it reasonable. Now, again, it ties into hours available and training time and so forth and how it fits into your life. Like if you said to me, okay, I have no expectations for the 100 miler that I'm doing next August, right? And then you sign up for it. But we see, okay, despite very low expectations and just wanting to finish, feeling good, um, that you just don't have the hours to train, well, then now we're back to square one as well. So, you know, how and when, right? And those are the hours we need and those are the expectations we need to set up. So that's part of that 50 miler and 70.3 training, how to best set up the right um, expectations, the right narrative to still have the best possible outcome in both and feel good doing both because then things also start to align completely different. So yeah, that's this week on the Weekly Word Podcast. I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm about to take off for Portland as I talk about on my coast ride and get in what looks to be like 743 miles in five days of cycling with a lot of climbing. But I will be reporting and podcasting and um, social media-ing from there. And uh, yeah, enjoy this week. I've had a lot of great conversations with athletes over the last few days, sort of checking in with them. I know I'm going to be on the road next week, so I want to make sure that I get a chance to talk to everybody, not necessarily everybody, but sort of general check-in. And, you know, it keeps coming up on that athletes, and I wouldn't say all of them, but there's definitely a handful that are curious, concerned, I wouldn't say worried, but concerned. It's on their mind of their volume, their distance um, that they're training for isn't quite where they want it to be or where maybe others are training. And this is a common, common thing in the endurance community and in endurance training in general. And it 
it always comes back to a simple fact. You can only train where you are, not where you want to be. And I know that's, that's a fancy saying, but the important thing is let's break it down. Training where you are, where you are means you're adding a little bit something to the stimulus every week or in a bigger macro sense, maybe every two, three weeks with a pullback recovery week, right? Training where you are. I'm stretching my fitness just a little bit. Training where you want to be means you overstretch. All of a sudden, you jump the volume too quickly. You don't have a platform or a foundation whereby you're stretching yourself from, right? And then the likelihood of injury, not guaranteed, no, but the likelihood of injury goes up, um, something we don't want to risk. And then also fatigue, not being as connected, not feeling as motivated and sound and fit as you are when you gradually stretch the fitness is, is an outcome that's frustrating. Um, if we jump our fitness too much, if we jump out ahead of where we are, it creates a complete imbalance overall. One, we don't feel as motivated and connected to our body because we've overstretched it. Um, we're more fatigued and then we're disappointed that we're carrying soreness or fatigue further into our week or further into our training. And that makes the next workouts less effective, not absorbing and so forth. It messes with our secondly confidence. We're then stuck wondering, where am I? What am I doing? Am I doing this right? You don't want to jump out ahead of your fitness. There's a lot of downstream effects that a bigger week Maybe, but constantly reaching to be further down the road is never, and I say that quite um, deliberately, never a good outcome. Training where you are, continuously getting closer to where you want to be in a healthy, sustainable, growing manner is the key. You know, you can't make a tree grow faster. I know this all sounds cliche and cheesy, but the same concept goes with our fitness. Nothing in our body can we jump ahead of who we are. Not mentally, not physically, not spiritually. We got to be where we are, right? The old saying, whether it's the Buddha or in any type of spiritual setting, be where you are and do that right. Do the training right where you are currently. And that's big for especially endurance athletes again. If you're doing your best of where you currently are, that will accelerate your growth and fitness to where the next step is. Because again, you're absorbing it. You feel good doing it. You're doing it right. You're doing it with intention, clarity, and purpose. And you've put another brick in the wall right? And then we can continuously get to where we want to be. That is the fitness we want to grow. The other thing to keep in mind here, we can easily build up to the event. Now, a lot of people get nervous about this, but again, we can only train where we are. And so what does it mean to train up to the event? Well, if you're getting ready for a marathon, right? Why not build in a healthy, sustainable manner? Again, this is under the caveat of healthy, sustainable, growth, motivated training where you are. Why not continue to grow that so that the one time you do the big volume, the big week, the big distance, not even week, big distance, is race day? Totally possible. 
It doesn't always have to be that you train the distance prior to the event. So I know that is sometimes cutting it close, but again, we only can work with where we are, right? And it'd be worse to be injured or not at our potential come race event day because we messed with the system, messed with where we are a few weeks back. And now we're flat. We have a niggle. We have a slight injury. Oh, our confidence is shattered. Oh, we had a bad experience and so forth. So I'd rather take you, the athlete, my athlete, and gradually move you forward. And sure, let's say again, the marathon example, you only got up to an 18 mile run. That's fine. That last eight rested, motivated, healthy, fit to 18 to 20 is going to be enough to extend one week. Beyond that, we're not looking for a more sustainable growth. Then we can extend it. Then we can reach that week, for example. 50 miler or 100K or 50K. Again, building up to a certain point and then using the event as the biggest run, as the biggest week. Quite common in events that are way longer than you can do in training. Like you wouldn't do a hundred miler in training, right? So you don't know what a hundred miler feels like going into your first hundred miler. You go up to half the event. If anything, you maybe 40 miler is the most you do in training in one sitting. Of course, you, you combine stuff or a 50 miler weeks out in prep. But once the event gets longer, you can't do the event distance. So you have to just creep it up and hit the day, event day, being your extension of that where you want to be now versus where you are for sure. You're never going to be at, you know, where you are at a 90 mile training run, right? Of course, for a training weekend with recovery and putting the days together, like I've talked about with 100-mile builds, putting the days of 100 miles of volume in less and less days, different conversation and different angle. But you see the point I'm making. Train where you are, not where you want to be. So very, very important, and not because of the most um, common angles of it. Uh, well, you know, you're just not fit enough. No, you're not able to do the training, absorb it, confidence, motivation, body healthy, progression, overall, next workouts, being compromised, all that ties into that. So think about that. Hi, Chris. First of all, I love the direction of the podcast is headed. Your transformation and transparency are around it is truly inspiring. So thank you for all you do. Yes, I do enjoy the podcast a lot. I love doing this and I love the contribution. Um, seems to be something that I've noticed about myself that I really get excited and fired up and feel fulfilled complete after, you know, doing a podcast and uploading it and sending it out and, you know, just, I don't know, it, it makes my day. So I appreciate that you are all somewhat sensing that and feeling that as well. My question is around dehydration and how to avoid it. It's a timely question because I just had a conversa conversation um, consultation as well this morning with a variety of athletes, um, two athletes, a husband and wife, that did their first Ironman and thought they were fitter than they were. And by the time we got to the um, realizing that they probably drank way too little, sounds like they fueled plenty, but drank way too little, it was too late meaning too late for their race and too late for them to have the to be able to display the fitness uh, 
that they've worked hard for. And that's the part with nutrition and hydration, right? We train so many months, we do probably what's right. They were The consultation was more around what they need to do over the winter and biking, and they were so disappointed in their bike split at their first Ironman, which was very good and very successful and quite um, strong. But still, it is what it is that they have certain expectations or certain interests to, to achieve certain outcomes and time splits. And so we had a consultation around that. And digging deeper, we came to this dehydration issue. And again, a lot of time, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of training, a lot of focus, a lot of reading, a lot of learning about how to train, but then overlooking fueling and hydration is a bummer because again, you don't get to display the fitness and the work you've put in on race day because dehydration or lack of fuel will compromise your output. The crazy thing about this too is that you think it feels, the signals in your body make it feel like fitness, make it feel like you um, are running out of energy. But all that is is your body sending the signals, a variety of different ways, that I'm dehydrated. I'm going to start pulling back and sending signals of fatigue and slowing you down in order to protect myself in order to start setting up systems of protecting organs. And I'm going to pull back on this output to save the fluids and the, the, the levels of fluids in my blood and my system to where I need to be. And those signals are sent as fatigue, as um, slowing down. Obviously, it's mechanical fatigue. Excuse me, that's what I was trying to say. It feels muscularly tiring. It feels breathing that a lethargic overall energy goes down. And we think that's fit fitness, despite all the work we did. But it's actually dehydration. And the body knows best to do it like this. Slow your effort. Slow your output. In order to do that, it sends all those signals of fatigue and tiredness. But actually, it's dehydration. So anyway... Something to not overlook. And again, as we're going into the preseason, it's October almost. Great time of year over the winter to work on fueling and hydration. I am sure that most triathletes, ultra runners, ultra endurance athletes have potential speed results, improvement, hours to find, hours for the ultra runners, not necessarily in Ironman triathlon, to find on just the nutrition and hydration component. Despite not doing more training, maybe even less training, but just optimizing the systems that they have in place and using your body and your energy better. So anyway, um, my question is around dehydration and how to avoid it. Let me give you some background so you'll have a bit of idea of where I'm coming from. I'm 42 in decent fitness condition, 310 road marathoner, usually finished in the top 10 of local marathon ultra running events. I'm a heavy sweater and historically have myself found myself a little in a little difficulty on longer events. Nauseousness creeps in around six hour mark and breathing can't really be controlled as it sits high when resting, ultimately leading to DNF. Another way our bodies signaling, most likely dehydration, I haven't gotten in here, but common nausea and shortness of breath. Again, sending signals of I'm out of breath that must mean I'm 
overworking. And then if we think overworking, we think over that we're pushing too hard and our fitness is run out. No. Um, a couple of months ago at the six hour mark, 43 kilometers point of a very tough 50K ultra in Fernie, British Columbia. Great spot, Fernie. Good skiing there in the winter. Beautiful in the summer. Um, I was very nauseous and the medical doctor, director of the race would not clear me to continue as breathing was labored and the chills came on. Yep. I respected his decision and during our conversation, based on the feedback that I gave him, he thought that perhaps I was waterlogged. Common thinking, um, actually over drinking and shared that the, the popular book and theory by Tim Noakes. I understand the risks associated with drinking too much. Yes but didn't really feel that I had overdid it. Regardless, the last couple of months, I've focused on drinking less and more, and for the most part, have not had any issues. Overdrinking is a big issue, just although you might know it, Rick, in this case, um, others might not. Overdrinking, overhydrating your blood, it thins out your blood, meaning too much water in the blood, has a variety of effects. Also, the sodium levels and so forth in your blood has a lot of downstream effects on the body, can actually make you quite dangerous of hyponatremia versus hyponatremia. Big difference, but similar effects on the body with regards to concerns and dangers. And um, quite honestly, also it quite happens often from not with retaining too much water during endurance events. I know a lot of athletes that retain water despite drinking plenty, but they're not peeing it out or flushing it out or it's not being used or being used by probably um, spread out in the body. I'm just trying to keep these terms simple and the visual going for all of you simply. And then we can retain so much water, pounds and pounds and pounds of water. Um, I knew a, a very successful pro triathlete. She put on 17, 18, 20 pounds of water weight at Ironman Texas one year, despite biking a 449 bike split way off the front and crushing it. But again, something went wrong in her hydration and nutrition. And that's it. The fittest person, the winner of that day, which would have been her, she could have run that course easily. Um, because I trained a lot with her, but again, derailed. So um, regardless, last couple of months, I focused on drinking less and for the most part have not had any issues. This past weekend, however, I applied the same approach, attempting my first 100K, River's Edge Ultra in Devon, Alberta. I've heard of the River's Edge Ultra. The start of the race was six degrees, we're talking Celsius, and the forecast is high to hit high of 22 at around 70k, nine hours, I started to feel a little nauseous. After spending some time at an aid station, I felt a little bit better and carried on. 76 kilometer aid station was when the wave came in full effect and vomiting occurred. I rested for about 30 minutes under supervision and then carried out, uh, carried on and lasted another 5k when it was definitely time to stop as the nauseous state was too much. After a couple of hours, doing nothing under supervision of a paramedic on the course, the move was made to get me to a hospital and start an IV drip. Long story short was that it was diagnosed as severe dehydration and heat exhaustion. I rebounded very quick and I'm fine. Looking back, perhaps my error was not adjusting my liquids when the temperatures were rising. However, I was concerned about taking in too much. The line seems to be thin, very thin, between what is too much and what is too little in terms of hydration. 
I'm wondering, is there a range that you would like to go by with respect to hydration, calories, etc., on an hourly basis for an ultra event? I feel I need to need a range to go by with respect to this in order to be successful. I've, as I've recently had a couple of learning experiences and failures. Yes, learning experiences, not failures. Because again, if you hit a point where you're doing this successfully, all these DNFs and um, learning experiences will be your story, will be how you got it done, and you will be happy it happened your way because you are better off for it. Again, thanks for all that you do. I've always got your voice inside my head on long runs, and it's sure been helpful. All right. So this is a difficult one because, again, I don't know the data. The data is missing here. Define drinking too little. Define drinking too much. What is it Rick in this case needs? I don't know. What has he tested when he writes, I have um, drank too much? What was too much? I didn't really feel that I overdid it. Regardless, the last couple of months, I've focused on drinking less. What is less? How many milliliters slash ounces is that? hard to tell here. So therefore, without giving specific advice to Rick, I'm going to pull it back a little bit and say, it's real simple. A, we need to test it. Test it in training, test it and see how we're doing. One, how we're peeing and how we're going through a long training day with our fluids. Are we peeing frequently? Not every 30 minutes because we're hydrating a lot, but that's a good sign then again too, because it means your system is working. Two, Effort level. Something is wrong here that the levels of drinking too much or too little, that the signals are not being received. Is it because of effort level? Might be because of effort level. I don't know. Again, I am missing a lot of data here, but it's something I would look at when I'm talking to my athlete. I would say effort level and what is the data? What are we looking at? But then I would look at it as a minimum of 500 milliliters an hour. I'm going into the metric system for this case because we're talking Canada. Um, but, you know, you guys all know it's about 24 ounces of fluid water um, at first to start with um, an hour. And then I would see is 30 ounces too much? Is 750 milliliters too much? Is it sloshing around in my tummy? Is 500 milliliters good the first hour, two, or three? And then I need to up it because my peeing's gone down and I feel a need for more fluids. And 750 milliliters after two, three, four hours of training doesn't slow down, slosh in my stomach. Maybe to start off with, it is. Um, am I coming in hydrated? We've talked about this before. Am I coming in with 750 milliliters or 500 milliliters of water fluids? before I start my training, right? Um, our long training days are always a great simulation. So the question shouldn't come up like this, right? Um, and again, during an event, if we're hydrating with the minimums and the ones that we've seen successfully in training, it's very, very important to also understand and be present in the effort and therefore in the mindset during an event that it's okay to stop stop drinking. Stop. I tell Ironman triathletes all the time when their stomach starts having GI issues or they're burpy or they're starting to get sloshy or starting to get nauseous, stop. Stop drinking. 
and reset the system, reset the body. If you feel you've gotten the 500 milliliters per hour and you're five, six hours in and something's not right, it's not being retained or something's sloshing around or you're feeling nauseous, stop drinking for 30, 40, 50 minutes, an hour maybe, and then reintroduce water. You need to reintroduce it, of course, but yes. Secondly, I would also look if I'm drinking too much, something's going on there nauseous-wise, so we don't know too little or too much. Thirdly, I would look into the precision hydration online test. You said you're a heavy sweater. How much sodium and how much electrolytes do you need in your system? Now, I know I talk a lot on my own experience and with my athletes, and we monitor this closely, and that is, do they need to take um, sodium or electrolytes on every bottle? I'm not a fan of that. I know the science goes against me by some companies, but I am definitely a fan of every third bottle. And sometimes the further we get into an event, every other bottle. Again, I use pH, precision hydration, and I'm a thousand milligram, thousand guy. And so therefore I start with water, then I go to a thousand milligram bottle, then I start with water, then I go back to water, I alternate. Although I start with two or three water bottles, then I start introducing every other bottle or every second bottle, every third bottle. But that's me. I've tested it. I know it. I know the signals to work with if I'm taking in too much or if I've drank too little, right? But it's important to understand our system and our body better. But yes, 500 milliliter is a great floor, floor minimum, right? And then it's a question of electrolytes. The other question I would have is fueling. Are, am I fueling enough? I can drink a certain amount, but I might feel nauseous if I'm under fueled. So a lot of things going on here. Clearly, running efficiently, capable, and fitness is there with your age as well as 310 marathon and so forth. So hopefully it's not a question of effort level, but when you're a 310 marathoner, it's very hard to slow down to the pacing of ultra running. I know this for a fact on dealing with so many athletes who are so surprised how slow ultra running is. Um, and yes, there's the freaks out there, the Jim Walmsleys of the world and so forth, who can just go from a 220 marathon on the road and then bust out on the trails. That's different. Professional athlete, um, amazing athlete. And you, Rick, might be an amazing athlete too, but we need to find the sweet spot between the two and, and be able to successfully work around it. So I know this doesn't answer your question specifically, but it hopefully helps answer the question for so many others where this is a common issue that comes up. So that's your floor. Understand where your maximum is, where your ceiling is, and start working in there and continue to hone the needs of yours so that come hot day, come cold day, come harder effort day, come easier effort day, come longer run, come shorter run. You're familiar with all the scenarios. Training journals are important for this. They carry all your insights. Listening to your body. As we get better with journaling, we get better about um, taking note in our mind to then later on journal. Um, it's a great turnaround practice, right? It closes the circle. As we're running or as we're training, we go, ah, I got to make a note of that. 
then you come back, you make a note of it, and you get better about checking and reflecting and looking back on your notes. And again, it just reinforces this pattern of notes, signaling, hearing what the body's telling us, becoming smarter from it, reapplying, and so forth. So hope that helps. But yeah, maybe you want to send me a side note on exact details on where you're, what you've been doing, and maybe we can narrow things down there. So hope that helps. Can you guys tell I have a new microphone? <laughs> Sometimes this thing's a little too sensitive. It's a it's a little bit better um, than the one I've used in the past that I need, now use when I'm traveling or on the road. But <laughs> I'm sorry if I um, jump the gain here a little bit too much and blow your ears off. But it also means the sound quality is not that good. So um, nothing I have here is very fancy, but I did decide to get a better microphone mainly too so that um mainly too mainly for the reason so that i also can sit with emily and we can talk back and forth using one microphone versus um trying to set up two and so forth so we can just sort of face each other across the table and have a conversation around nutrition that um i'm trying to get all the emails compiled for so Yes, so sorry about the new microphone, and uh, yeah, I'll get better at not blasting everybody's ears off. I just received an email, or actually a WhatsApp from one of my athletes, and it brought up a good point that I think a lot of athletes, especially training for endurance events, struggle with. He wrote me, I wasn't able to reach the goals today, a bit baffled on why. The workout was exhausting at the level I did it, but I was supposed to go even harder to reach 160 to 165 heart rate above. So one, um, he's not reading it right since it says 155 to 165 heart rate. But also um, it brings up a point that I like to bring up with a lot of athletes that are not necessarily newer to my coaching, but newer to understanding what this training and what training really is in many cases. Training isn't always supposed to be achievable. Otherwise, it's exercising. If you know you can go out and execute that workout, that training as is, as is written, well, then it's a different type of stimulus. Then it's about form, footwork, technique, posture, other things maybe cadences and so forth, or you're working on certain things. But when the stimulus is on the far edge of what you think you're capable of, you know, that workout really taxes you and challenges you and is not successful. You're not successful in hitting heart rates or paces. That is why we're training. We're training so that you are teaching your body, you're extending yourself enough that it's on the far edge of what you're capable of. And so that's something to keep in mind for all of us as we're training. Training isn't always supposed to be achievable. Otherwise, it's exercising. Exercising, you know what you're doing. You know what it's going to feel like. You know what the outcome is. You know where you're going. You know if you do it, how you're going to feel. And a variety of other inputs. Exercising is because it feels solid. It feels right, given that 
They're not getting prepared or specific or intentional about anything. That's exercising. But yeah, when you don't hit the intervals or don't hit the heart rates or don't hit the outcomes, yeah, that means you stay hungry and stay focused and start thinking, well, what do I need to do next time to get closer, to get better at it, to achieve it? Or maybe I was capable of achieving it, but you know, I didn't fuel or hydrate properly today, or I had a bad night's sleep last night, or I'm fatigued because I went a bit too hard yesterday, or um, I'm coming off of this week, or, you know, I try to avoid that with my athletes, that they're that I've lined up the training so that they're too fatigued in order to execute that workout properly. But no, I don't expect them to execute, achieve every workout goal outcome as I've written. I want them to be challenged. I want them to question if they can do it because then when they start doing the things that they weren't used to capable, used to being able to do, right? Not capable, but used to being able to do. Then when they're doing that, then they're progress. Then it's confidence. Then it's motivation. Then I see it's working. Then all the, the, the ex, other outcomes with it happen. But no, first attempt, first few attempts, if things go wrong, <laughs> that's training. So I had an athlete say, as I mentioned, this one scares me a little bit, but I like the challenge. I will execute it one of these days. So that athlete wasn't able to achieve, there's a different athlete than the original one, um, wasn't able to achieve the outcome, the intervals, the paces. As I mentioned, this one scares me a little bit. Good, good. You need to think about, you see it on the training plan, you see it out there tomorrow, or you see it later this week and you start thinking about, all right, what do I need to do to put all my ducks in a row to line this up so that I'm set up for the best possible attempt, outcome, approach towards executing those intervals, those paces, those intensities, those repeats, whatever it is. And then, right, this one scares me a little bit, but I like the challenge. I will execute it one of these days. That's fantastic. That's what I want to hear. And that's that creates the, the canvas of which you fall back upon when you're, tr when you're out there doing your race, your event, your adventure, your expedition, and things get really hard. All these micro wins, all these little times where you're like, man, I grew from that to this. I stuck with it. I had a positive out outlook. I knew I was going to achieve X at some point. And so all this is just all builds within us to change who we are, to turn us into the best current athlete version of ourselves. We see all these little software updates that we're doing, all these little improvements to the hardware called our body. And as we improve these little bug fixes and software updates and get fitter and fitter and fitter, it creates a whole new operating system. We're a new person because of all the experiences and all the little things we did along the way that made us a little better, that made us the current version of who we are, the current athlete version of who we are. That was you. That was your training. That was your unapproachable that has become approachable. That's the fun. Working through some older emails here. Um, and, you know, it's hard to keep up with all the email questions that come up. 
mainly because I try to also keep it current with regards to the race season or subjects that I had just recently discussed. But this one was sitting out there and I did want to make sure I address it. And that is a question I'd love to address for the podcast is how to maintain motivation for those who have not grown up with sports. I hear a lot of people who played sports throughout school and has been a part of their lives. I don't hear too much about people who are just starting for the first time in their older years. I find that my motivation goes through peaks and valleys. The valleys are much harder to get out of. I'd like to hear your thoughts on how to help change the mindset from a casual runner to an athlete's mindset. You said the mental component is a major part of being an athlete, and I fully agree. Most of my runs, I found my mind telling me to stop, but having to convince it that I'm still capable of running the time or distance that I set out to do. Well, Kevin, um, this is a good question and a difficult one to answer in broader terms because the mental component for many athletes is individual based off of their history, based off of their internal dialogue narrative, what their roadblocks, mental blocks are with regards to completing the training now um, or, or just staying consistent with the training. Important with all this, though, is to not try to compare yourself to a different version of athlete that you might think you are. You are an athlete, like I've said, with mindset alone. Because if you treat your body and stay consistent and stay intentional with your training, you are an athlete. It has nothing to do with skill, distance, ability, time, pace, whatever that is. It has to do with being an athlete is a mindset, nothing else. You're no different than LeBron James, than Tom Brady, than any other professional athlete if you have the right mindset. Professional athletes prepare themselves intentionally, clarity, purpose towards their next session, training, workout, so forth. You have the ability to do that as well. Professional athletes go out and execute the training as described, as they had written out or as their coaching staff has given them. They do it to the best of their ability. They close that chapter of that workout analyze how they did or live analyze, meaning as they're doing it, making subtle adjustments. Then they finish the workout and they start thinking about the next training session, recovery, rebuilding, regeneration, whether it's physically, nutrition, sleep, recovery, and so forth. That cycle is all available to all of us. So that's the first part to understand. We are all athletes. It's a mindset. It's not an outcome, a result, a status, a pace, um, and so forth. So struggling to find consistency in this is, yeah, there is a difficulty with it if we are looking for it with expectations towards what we are doing. So in your case, running. Um, If you are looking to do a certain event running, or if you are looking to achieve a certain distance running, or if you're looking to do anything with a future desired outcome, part of the journey is these peaks and valleys. Those professional athletes go through those same peaks and valleys. There's days they feel wonderful, feel great, feel motivated, confident, excited to go to the session or do the session. 
And then there's other days they're dragging, they're tired, they're flat. They need a, a spark, a pick-me-up. And usually they're able to communicate with themselves, talk to themselves and say, well, this is the work. The reason you are an athlete is, and not just exercising is because you are doing the work when you don't want to. And that's the big part. This has nothing to do whether you've been a high school athlete or a college athlete or an athlete all your life. The difference between a casual runner, meaning exercising, and an athlete runner, athlete's mindset, is that you take the task given to you, workouts, workouts for the week, intervals, whatever the prescription is, whatever you wrote out for yourself, whatever you've pulled off the internet from a training plan, or even what a coach is giving you. The fact that you go out and do the work, that you go out and execute. That's the only difference. There is no difference. People like to sugarcoat being an athlete, being a professional athlete, and all this so differently. It's real simple. You wake up, you do the work that's written on the piece of paper or on the um, email that you get with the training plan or on your training peaks um, delivery or whatever means you get the workout or have it written out. You go out, you do it, you shut it down, and you prepare for the next one. It's not always glorious, no. It doesn't always feel great, no. I already talked about it earlier that training isn't supposed to always be achievable. It doesn't always feel good, no. You don't, you don't always get a runner's high. You don't always get to clear your mind. You don't always get to feel good and light and fast and like you're making progress. That's the work. And if you've heard a few of my podcasts, you know that I keep saying you gotta do the work. There is no way around it. So I find that my motivation goes through peaks and valleys. Yes, it does for all of us. The valleys are harder to get out of. Well, you also need to consider and contemplate and maybe uh, ruminate upon why you're doing this. If it is for a future outcome that is meaningful to you, that strikes you um, with curiosity, a little bit of fear, but also excitement on what you're capable of, it should motivate you to maintain your focus through the valleys because you have something out there that your curiosity, your intrigue is greater than what you're feeling in the now, right? In general, expectations are you're willing to invest now into a future outcome and there is no shortcut. You got to do the work. But that is what makes us human beings so unique that we can do something today make a sacrifice today, learn today, invest in our bodies today to be better at a future point in time. No other animal, no other being on this planet does things like that. There is no um, purposeful investment in today for a future outcome. Take that to your advantage. Realize that that's something incredibly special, saying, I want to run a 10K in under 45 minutes in, you know, six months. That's your future desired outcome. No other being can do that. And then saying, what will I do today in order to help me achieve that what is in the future in six months? And so that is what being an athlete is. It's investing in yourself today, investing in the work today, doing the work today to build that foundation, to do it brick by brick. 
if you're wavering in that intrigue, in that curiosity, if the challenge isn't meaningful enough for you, then you're just going through the motions, yes. Then you're just going out and exercising because your intention, your clarity, your purpose of the workout doesn't fit into the bricks of the wall that will then be the foundation to what you will have a future good outcome towards. If those bricks don't fit, if those aren't square, if they're round pegs, they're not going to feel good. It's not going to set, set sit right. And to do that enough times, yes, motivation will wane. But that's the challenge here too. Um, I'm just going to read back here. I've only recently started running as of last year, and I completed a 10K and a half marathon at the age of 43. First of all, that's not, <laughs> that's not older age. Um, I wish I would have found you back then as I had no idea what I was doing. I started running and added more distance um, as I went. Ultimately, it worked, but I know with more specificity and focus, I would have seen faster results. This year, I'm adding additional wilderness adventures to my goals as I now know I can run those distances. Um, so keep that in mind. Are those future outcomes that you're looking to achieve motivation enough to get you through the valleys? That, I think, is the key here. And for many of us as athletes, to this day, given the 40-plus Ironmans that I've done and the 100-milers and the 50-milers and 50Ks and 100Ks and Attilo swim runs and Ultraman distances and over, you know, crazy long ultra-endurance events and multi-day events, finding something that will keep me motivated through my training is very hard. Now, for me, my motivation doesn't wane because I love training. I love going out there and again, clearing headspace, um, clearing the mind, going deeper. Now the challenge is going deeper is further and further away from me. So in order to really turn off the brain, it has to be a two, three, four, five hour run. And that you can't do very often. Um, in order to go deeper it has to be a three, four, five, six, seven hour bike ride, which luckily I will have time for next week. But in general, ultra endurance events the challenge there is you have to get far enough into the event so that your entire psyche, soul, body, everything within you has let go, has exhaled. And that's where I think you have somewhat of a transformational, psychedelic, deep moving experience because you are so worn down, because you are so broken down that your body sort of lets go and allows the true consciousness, our soul to come alive and talk and communicate with us. There's no barriers. Basically, the ego has been broken down by many hours of activity, many hours of lack of sleep, many hours of going up or down hills and just being exhausted and questioning our ability, questioning our fitness, questioning if we can do this. When we start questioning like that because we're so fatigued, broken down, exhausted, the ego starts to dissolve and that becomes fun. To me, that's where the adventure begins because that's where I'm, in my experience, operating on a higher plane. And so that is my motivation. That's why I train on a daily basis in order to continue to be able and fit enough or close to a fitness level to go there maybe once or twice or three times a year. But for you, Kevin, I would definitely say 
um, you might want to reevaluate, take a few days, take a few steps back and evaluate what it is you're looking to achieve. What is your intention? What is your clarity of purpose? Like I have many of my athletes tried out, meaning what is, why are you doing this? And what is it you're looking to feel, see, observe, grow in this journey of training? Because having an, a better understanding of the path of the experience of what your expectations, yes, expectations are as you're going through the training, it might be easier to see, well, that's not going to be achievable or, man, I was coming at this all wrong. Maybe what I'm looking for is this or, oh, I can actually achieve that three or four times a week. Yeah, two or three times a week. I don't feel great, but look at the benefits the other three or four times a week offer me. So I'm not really sure I could answer it as individual and personal to you because I don't have enough background, but I hope my thoughts have helped a little bit. All right, time to follow up on that biking for running fitness um, commentary that I had last week and um, discussion. And then the follow up of an email that I received here that I think is valuable and I I should make some correction to. I love it, by the way, catching me on feedback that might be confusing or not quite as clear as I've made in past episodes. Hi, Chris. I love the podcast. Thanks for the insight and guidance and so forth. In episode 115, there was a question on whether zone two on the bike is beneficial for improving running in zone two. I was surprised your question to the an- your answer to the question was that zone two on the bike doesn't contribute a whole lot to running, mainly because what I took was the different muscles in action and the needed f- the need for running efficiency. Correct. I remember you said many times that the heart doesn't care what you actually do, so wanted to check with you regarding this. Wouldn't you be improving aerobic capacity either way, regardless to the activity type, as long as you're in zone two? Your heart would still get the benefit of becoming more efficient in delivering oxygen to the muscles. I always say working muscles, right? Thanks for clarifying. You are correct. There is a gray zone there. Now, the key qualifier is, does zone two biking help my running fitness with regards to running fitness, not with regards to overall fitness. If we're looking to build a bigger engine, a zone two aerobic capacity engine, yes, biking does help. But when we're looking to translate it specifically to a discipline, a sport, and an event with it, it's hard to say that cycling, so I, let's come at it from a different angle. If you were getting ready for a marathon, could you for eight weeks running once a week, maybe your long run, and the other five days a week just cycle with zone two training? I think you know the answer to that. And that's sort of what I'm coming to. Are you getting aerobically fitter? Is your VO2 max improving? Is your delivery of oxygen to the working muscles improving? Is your um, mitochondria density improving? All those things, yes. Is a little bit of lactate buffering improving? Yes. Um, so overall, are you creating more capillaries to deliver wor- uh, oxygen to the working muscles? Yes. So all that is helping your zone two, your aerobic capacity, for sure. There's going to be benefits. But to translate it specifically to an event where a performance is needed, desired, 
No, you do need to do the running work, the neuromuscular firing, the fatigue firing, the landing and the push-off firing, the form when the body gets tired, properly keeping that in mind, economy of motion, all those things. So the, the, the gentle qualifier here is for specific um, desired outcomes. But are there a lot of physiological benefits? Yes. Is it great to cycle on days when the body is broken down on a, when you're getting ready for an ultra endurance event running and to keep the heart rate um, stimulated and in zone two, but without the pounding on the body? Yes. Is water running great for running as well without the pounding on the body, similar motion, but um, without the pounding, still getting the heart rate up? Yes. Um, is swimming helpful for running? Yes. It's an overall, yes, overall, overall arching improvement in your aerobic function. But yes, and eventually horses for courses, we're going to have to build the body for the discipline we're doing. And in this case, I was more answering it for, can it be a replacement? Can I use cycling to um, improve my running outcome for a half marathon, marathon, 50K, whatever it is we're getting ready for? No. That is, you can't use one specifically for the running activity. Can you use it as active recovery? Yes. Can you use it as an aerobic function building base long ride? Yes. For example, great, great workout, great idea for a workout is if you're a good cyclist and you're also looking to ultra run, well, then maybe do a three, four, five hour bike ride, aerobic zone two, one day or in the morning, fatigue the body with aerobic function, and then in the afternoon, do a 90-minute ride, or then the next morning, do a two-hour run or a three-hour run. So without the pounding on the body, you were able to get the zone two aerobic efficiency, but um, you didn't do it the wear and tear on the body, and then the next day, you're still recruiting actively the muscles and the gait and the economy of motion, neuromuscular firing through the chain that you need on a fatigued body in order to simulate what you're getting ready for. So I hope I clarified the dif difference there. And um, maybe I didn't understand the previous question well enough, or didn't answer it with the detail that you're talking about. But that's what I meant. So I hope that helps. And I really do appreciate the follow up. I, I would love to get that kind of accountability. So that is important. And um, thank you for sending that. On a side note, I get um, a variety of emails or questions from newer athletes on why there are no heart rate zones for swimming. I'm not sure if I brought this up before, but even if I did, it's a good reminder that for heart rate and swimming, it's a different value, different number, different um, load on the heart because, and therefore we don't use heart rate zones or any type of real heart rate value unless you have enough data from a heart rate perspective from swimming, which is a different formula and is always going to be a lot more elevated. So for example, if you do wear a heart rate monitor for a triathlon, you'll notice if, <clears throat> excuse me, if done right, meaning if raced or um, executed properly, the heart rate on the swim should be the highest heart rates of the day. Because the key to keep in mind with swimming is you're doing um, oxygen restriction. When you're swimming, you're breathing in a pattern. 
and you can't breathe more frequently other than every other stroke. No matter if you're going easy or fast, you're still stuck in that same rhythm. And that's why swimming from a fitness standpoint for a lot of swimmers over a lifetime have created an amazing lung capacity and aerobic functioning because it's the only sport in the world where you're restricting your breathing while sprinting, while doing something aerobic, while doing something at threshold, while doing something at tempo. So imagine going out and running and holding your breath for you know three seconds um, every single between every single breath makes it a lot more difficult and therefore also of course improves your aerobic functioning and d- delivery of oxygen to the working muscles. But because of that oxygen restriction while swimming, throwing a flip turn or some streamline, let's say for swimmers, swimmers. But even for you, as you hit the wall, whether you do a flip turn or an open turn, keeping in mind that when you're pushing off, you're breaking the breathing rhythm that you were in suddenly and holding it differently and then going back into a breathing pattern, even if it's every other stroke, breathing to one side, um, it still breaks it up and again, costs a little bit more on the heart rate. So oxygen restriction creates an increase in heart rate. Um, Now, you do that occasionally that it's a blip but you do it for the entire workout and change speeds and are constantly doing for it for an hour hour and 15 minutes hour and a half minutes for a swim workout it will have a different effect on the body with regards to heart rate stress and elevated heart rate than what we're familiar with with running and cycling so it just creates a different economy of motion efficiency and so forth and uh, and stroke heart stroke, blood volume stroke, for lack of a better description. So no heart rate zones really for swimming. And it's something not to really be freaked out about or pay too much attention to. Um, Now, if you have a lot of data and you always swim with a heart rate monitor, you'll notice that you can actually similarly get to a place where you figure out your heart rate zones. But for the swim, it really isn't that important. So We don't use heart rate for swimming. It's not necessary. It's not needed. It's not an accurate value and number. It's not something you can monitor while you're swimming, open water in a pool that you're looking at your watch going, oh, got to slow down. So therefore, we don't even attempt to use it. All right, we'll do another email and we will call it shorter this week on the Weekly Word podcast. I'm about to head off to LA in order to uh, see Rich at his event and a variety of clients down there as well. But I surely want to support him and his live event, as well as a lot of his clients and friends are clients of mine. And so uh, it'll be a fun 36 hours in Los Angeles. But then I come back and I fly to Portland the following day in order to do that Portland to San Francisco coast ride with a couple of buddies. And I'm hoping to give some podcast insights from that trip during the trip and um, yeah, keep everybody sort of in the loop on how it's going. It's about 125 to 130, some days 137 miles. And um, while the first few days are pretty uh, mellow with regards to climbing, once you get to Southern Oregon, Northern California, you hit what's called the Lost Coast. And that's quite a lot of steep, uncomfortable climbing through the redwoods and rugged coastline. So I'm excited to explore this 
part of the road highway, Highway 1 from uh, Canada to Mexico at this time of year. I've never done it at this time of year, and it should be beautiful, a little bit chillier, but that'll do all of us good after six, seven, eight hours in the saddle every day. But yeah, truly a different type of ultra endurance adventure of six days of six to seven to eight hours in the saddle, but it will, um, it will manifest itself how it needs to. And hopefully there will be good stories, insights, and so forth to share, um, the coast ride. But Last email, um, hi Chris, short version, combining two training plans for ultra marathon and 70.3 race. I will keep this short and sweet. I love the podcast, the time you dedicate to helping those trying to maximize their time, fitness, and goals. So incredible. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, that's sort of, it is about that. It's about maximizing your time, taking the fitness that you have, and understanding also that, like I said earlier, investing in yourself now for a future outcome, that becomes very important. There are no shortcuts, and especially not with the body. Um, the worst experience you can have is being six months down the road from now, having tried to do shortcuts and knowing and having it weigh on you that you could have done more that you shouldn't have done any type of training hacks and that you could have been prepared better for this event that you're about to embark on. And it's different when life gets in the way and there is no reality that we could have done more, but it does feel awful when you know you could have done more and you don't have the platform, the foundation, the base needed to do the adventure you're looking to do. And then it becomes a question mark. And then confidence becomes then confidence becomes affected, um, and you start questioning things, and that's not a good state, enjoyment factor, experience factor to be in, as you're doing something that's hopefully intriguing, fearful, curious, and so forth. But background: I'm a 35 year old elementary school teacher, can run a marathon at about 350. Although that was a few years ago, half marathon in 134. 10k in 40 minutes and so forth and recently finished Ironman Lake Placid in 1421 done a number of 70.3 events best swim is 34 bike 246 run 151 um, and some other data I'm question I'm doing Antelope Canyon 50 mile ultra marathon in March it's a fun one I'm familiar with that one uh, March 15th 2020 and I will also be doing Connecticut 70.3, May 31st. All right, so we're talking all of May, all of April difference. Um, after that 50 miler on March 15th until March 30th, you're going to be useless. So let's count two months, um, all of April, all of May. I found a great 50 mile training plan starting at the end of October. But should, I, but should I also get a 70.3 plan as I enjoy the structure and how should I merge the two plans together to make them efficient and not overdo it? I don't have kids. My fifth graders are plenty enough right now. And I like to train from 5 to 7 a.m. weekdays and have a lot of time on weekends. I hope that's enough information. Thank you, Greg. Um, 
well, it it does become challenging. It becomes intriguing. And again, this is the fun stuff on why we do these things. So first of all, can you do it? Yes. I'm always a big proponent that you guys all can do almost anything. I think most people can walk off the street and can do an Ironman. It's just a question of time and their expectations and their enjoyment um, factor of doing it. But can a human being... Um, swim 2.4 miles if they know how to swim not meaning a swimmer swimmer but if they can move through the water yes can they bike 112 miles when there's no time limits or expectations yes can they run a marathon run walk a marathon yes um anyway so can you yes of course so what i would think is you would want to stay connected to the as we've talked about the discipline that requires the most fitness and that is cycling so the good thing is you'll be plenty run fit, although ultra running and running 13.1 miles on pavement are two different sports. Your turnover, your pace, your f- sensations, your landing, your hip placement, all that, the wear and tear on the body is different when you're running trails and long and slow versus 13.1 um, at, to the best of your ability on the back end of a 1.2 mile swim and a 56.1 mile bike. But that being said, I would stay connected to cycling fitness through um, March 15th. What does that mean? So in your case, can you get in two cycling sessions a week whilst doing the 50-mile plan? That's how I would look at it. As I discussed earlier, could you do on an easier run day that you have in the 50-mile plan, which most have it, a shorter run, could you maybe do a hour and a half or two hour bike prior on a weekend so that you end up doing your long run let's say on saturday in your 50 mile plan and then do a let's say a two hour bike on sunday to sort of shake out the soreness and achiness of the um, previous day's long run and then go out and about with the run that was planned the day after the long run many 50 mile plans don't have a run after the long run day so maybe you just do cycling that day and then maybe during the week do something shorter um like i talk about um, a lot i like the doing interval work during the week on the bike it's indoors it's not weather dependent it's specific keeps you connected to intensity so i would probably say that and i've done that in the past myself for 100 mile runs and for 100k runs where i've stayed connected to cycling fitness by teaching my indoor cycling classes so either did it once a week or twice a week and then would occasionally sprinkle in a longer bike ride on a weekend if the training schedule so so lined up if it wasn't longer it would be let's say 90 minutes or two hours prior to a run off the bike now the run off the bike wasn't in the purpose of doing a brick so transitions could be longer it was more just Let's string together one long workout. Let's say it's a four-hour workout, two-hour bike into a two-hour trail run. I can do that around here on our trails pretty quickly. So that basically, again, the load is four hours, but the running time is two hours and so forth. And this ties back into the biking for running fitness. Great way to combine those two as well. Staying connected to biking fitness and helping your run fitness. Now, you need to run. Like I was saying earlier, but because you're combining the two, you're creating a four-hour load on the heart with only two hours of running 
pounding on the body. But in your case, that's what I would do. And then I would switch quickly over. I would give myself 10 days off, um, maybe some easy swimming that in that window, March 15th to April 1, and then quickly ramp up the cycling. You're not disconnected from your cycling going into March 15th because you've been doing these two workouts. And then um, I wouldn't worry too much about swimming. Um, it doesn't look like swimming's an issue for you. Swim 118, you'll pick that up quickly. Swim 34 for a half, you'll pick that up quickly. Those two months, I would focus then on lots of cycling, more swimming, and little running. You, By the time you get your true running legs back from a 50-miler, it will be um, early May anyway. So maybe run twice a week, short, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And the other workouts a week, I would spend cycling and swimming. And then in May, I would spend two or three of those. Uh, so you have four and a half weeks in May because it's the 31st. I would spend three of those weeks in May, not in April, doing true triathlon training where you can take a 70.3 plan and sort of look at it for where it would be four or five weeks out of event day and apply that structure. So I think that's a good start, but that's how I, how I would do it. I would stay connected to cycling fitness, not worry about the swim fitness and the run fitness is obviously there and then merge the two ever so gradually early May and then use April for swim and upping the cycling fitness that you're not that disconnected to anyways. So hope that helps. I actually wanted to follow up on something and that is in, I just went for a run and thinking about the email that I just responded to with regards to training through valleys and the mindset needed and so forth. I would actually recommend, and I've done this before, but for if you struggle in your training, and besides the things we talked about with what is it the journey or the outcome and the desired outcome and how you go about it and all that, what I would recommend is using a training journal um, specifically for this if you're struggling with this. And that is because if you can say, let's identify three things, three bullet points on why I was in a valley or had a difficult time or a negative mindset or a non-joyful, um, excited, feeling alive mindset um, outcome of the training. Because there's a few things going on. If you don't feel alive, invigorated, uh, uh, just a lot of vitality and, and joy when you're done with the workout, then we want to capture why. Now, of course, many of us struggle with getting started on a workout. We're achy, we're slow, the stress of the day, we're sleepy. Um, if it's early in the morning, late in the afternoon, we're lethargic, a variety of things going on there. But um, ending, it should feel pretty good. Now, during, let's go into that. During is a different question too. Sometimes it takes a while for us to sort of settle in, exhale, steady state, and it feels awkward, it feels achy, doesn't feel good, out of breath, fatigued, all those things. There's not a week that goes by where I don't have workouts like that myself. Today's run, perfect example. I was surprised how out of breath and flat and non-bouncy and disconnected I was during the run. Um, I mean, of course, injury doesn't help that. But if I slow down enough, I should be able to 
find a place where I can maintain a rhythm or find a rhythm, not even maintain it, but just find one. So those happen. But at the end of the workout, I feel fine. But if that negative, um, not mindset, I wouldn't call it negative mindset because said athlete on the question still is training. So the mindset isn't that negative that it's debilitating and not keeping you moving forward. But I would capture all this in a training journal. And I would try to narrow it down to three or five bullet points. And notice if those are similar bullet points each time you had a couple of bad workouts or you went through a longer valley or just negativity during your training. Um, afterwards, capturing that in a journal, not a log, a journal. And it doesn't need to be a lot, just sort of how you were feeling today and why it is you think you felt the way you did. And hopefully with those three to five bullet points, you can start seeing a trend and maybe wondering why those came about. Did I eat enough during the day? Was it, um, you know, food and fuel for sure affects emotions and how we go through the workout. Um, Now, of course, once the endorphins get flowing and the body gets going, usually that subsides. But if we're struggling prior, something to capture for sure. Um, Is it the time of day? Maybe the stresses and the load of the day created um, a negative bullet point later on in the workouts, and that's a consistent trend. Maybe work out earlier in the morning uh, or first thing in the morning. Um, So it could be a variety of different things, right? Fatigue. It could be that it's uh, the day before or it's too close to the weekend when the volume was, and then those uh, negative bullet points, as I'll call them right now, keep coming up on a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, right? Because you're not quite recovered and you're not connected to your running form or whatever discipline sport you're doing. And therefore, um, you notice a trend. Wow, I'm always seems to seem to struggle through the workouts when it's this or when I'm too close to that, or if I'm on the back end of this, or if I'm under fueled that, or if that seems to be Wednesdays when I have a business meeting, every a standing meeting with my team and I come out of it overloaded or stressed or bummed out or not achieving my desired work outcomes. So many different things tie into this. So I want to be very sensitive to capturing that in those bullet points. So back to that original point, try a training journal. Training journals are very specific in a way. And um, I always make some notes with regards to training journals. I wouldn't necessarily call this a journal, but a good training log, for example, end of day, workout grade, you give yourself a, a a grade, A, B, C, D, or E, or F, E, <laughs> sorry, A, B, C, D, F. How did it feel? What did I observe? What could I have done better? Did I get a tick closer to my goal? Comment of the day, trending, up arrow, down arrow, flat, sleep evaluation, sort of sleep grade, nutrition grade. So there's a variety of bullet points you can just click through and maybe create your own data and spreadsheet or a trend line from it. But those are some examples where you sort of want to evaluate emotionally how the workout felt, not data points, not pace, not workout execution, not intervals this week versus last week and so forth, but sort of more reflective um, and and, in a journal aspect. One, what kind of grade would I give myself for this workout? And then the bullet points below that sort of break down why that grade, 
How did it feel? What did I observe? Even if you didn't observe much, even if it was I felt crappy today, negative mindset, didn't feel good, um, kept having to shake off the the blues, meaning uh, the, the, the little voice on my shoulder talking me out of the workout. Those are good observations. Those are important to capture. That might be one of those bullet points. Um, what could I have done better, right? Um, did I wander off and miss an opportunity to stay connected? If we practice staying connected and staying focused and in the moment and present and in that connection with our body and continuous body scan, that's a practice thing that we can increase that time week over week, month over month, so that then you notice you can stay fully present, fully engaged, fully connected, all senses connected within the body inwards in order to have the best possible sensations, outcome, moment, hour, training. Um, did I get a tick closer to my goal? I mean, we always want to feel that afterwards, and that's part of the positive um, energy flowing after because we subconsciously know we did we, we pushed ourselves and brought ourselves and uh, sort of helped guided ourselves a little bit closer to our desired outcome. But maybe define what that is. Maybe those, what did it, so not only what could I have done better, but how, what are the few things that I did today? Or what is the one bullet point or two bullet points that I did today that made that workout, um, allowed me to get the feeling, the sensation, the confidence, the motivation that I'm getting closer to my future desired outcome. Um, comment of the day. Now, it just, whatever that might be trending you know you can just draw, draw have a little symbol an arrow up arrow down or flat and that way you don't even have to write anything about it you just give yourself a, a workout grade and that arrow um i would definitely focus on a sleep grade or sleep arrow or sleep number one to ten maybe um so that you can start noticing that that might tie into the negativity and the negative mindset big time are you getting enough sleep and recovery because if that's not the case it is all negative, downhill. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did a workout where I had a late night and I did get a fair amount of sleep, but the night before, I also didn't get that much sleep. And two days in a row of changing my sleep rhythm and getting too little sleep, man, I was not uh, feeling good in the workout. If I always felt like that, ugh, I, wouldn't, I would not be training nearly the way I'd like to because constantly overcoming and fighting myself because sleep and fatigue and sort of just sort of being out of it and not being fully connected, that will quickly demotivate me. Absolutely. And then of course, nutrition grade. How was my day leading up to the workout and my evening prior with regards to nutrition, with regards to fueling, with how am I preparing, prepping, and regenerating my body to have the best possible workout? So, Again, I know I went into a lot more detail on that than I thought I would, but that's a training journal. That's where you're capturing not wattages or paces or distances or things like that. You're capturing insights, emotions, um, and valuable, valuable objective data. So I hope that helps, and it should help. All right. Well, thank you for this week on the Weekly Word Podcast, episode 117. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, so many good questions, so many good emails. I have a bunch of new emails ready to go, and I've gotten some consistent questions that I wanted to um, follow up on. One, there was a request for 
Tim DeBoom on the podcast. I will, uh, he's actually a friend, not like a close buddy, but um, I feel very comfortable reaching out to him and catching up with him. And hopefully he'd be willing to have a conversation on the podcast, um, which is a fun idea. That might be a great one. And him and I can banter a little bit because, again, we have a friendship that um, we can give each other a hard time for. And then uh, also the question was with regards to the coast ride. I'm getting a lot of emails, a lot of updates, uh, not updates, but a lot of inquiries with the January coast ride, San Francisco. It's an um, even year, so we only go to Santa Monica four days. It'll be January 17th to the 20th. So send me an email if you want to be on that list. But we leave Friday on January 17th, arrive Santa Monica on Monday afternoon, MLK Day. So it's a holiday. Um, January 20th, most people fly out that evening in order to be back at work on Monday, on Tuesday morning. So one day of vacation day gives them four days of a coast ride from San Francisco to Santa Monica. Then... I've also gotten some questions with regards to spring training camp. I'm putting together the dates on that. And uh, yeah, otherwise, we'll uh, we'll just dive into the next podcast with any questions out there. And I've heard from another few coaches on some other ideas that we can discuss. And I was just in LA as well and um, talked to Mario Frioli. And so he's going to um, come on the podcast as well. So we're going to have some fun here in the next few months. So have a great week, everybody. Um, I look forward to updating you from the Portland to San Francisco Coast Ride. Thank you.